So again, Revelation 22, verse 6. It says, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw these things, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, uh, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Father, we do want to just lean in uh, to you this morning. We want to hear from you, God. We don't want to be apathetic to you or to what you're wanting to say to us and how you're wanting us to respond to you, God. So I pray that your word would bring great conviction and great comfort into our lives today, that we would truly um, meet with you, having experienced your life through your word. So would you speak, and God, would you give us the ability to listen? In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. Um, I do want you guys, and myself, really, uh, just to process a very important question in our time together this morning. That's this. What do you believe is the solution to your problems? What do you believe is the solution to your problems? And what do you believe is the solution to really all the problems of the world? How about the brokenness of the world? So you can think of it this way. I mean, as you experience the frustrations of life this week or uh, just in those moments that you felt really helpless this week, what were you looking to as the solution? I suggest to you this morning 
that you can discover what you think is the solution to your problems and really the solution to the brokenness of the world when you start listening to what it is that you cry out for. How you can discover what it is that you think is the solution when you start listening to what it is that you cry out for. See, we see in scripture this morning many things, uh, but we see very clearly the solution to our problems. And we really see the solution to the brokenness of this world. And so uh, there are three things, I guess, that I, I want us to see from this passage that are really clear, I think. That is this incredible announcement, Jesus' announcement that he makes to the world. We see two ways that we can hear this announcement this morning. These are, there's only two that you're going to hear this announcement this morning. And finally, we see this cry that Jesus' people give in their lives. And you'll see this, this sort of roadmap on the back of your, your paper branch notes if you're wanting to follow along there. So first, we see in this passage Jesus' announcement to the world, okay? It seems very clear. I think once you've heard this read over your life or as you've read this maybe in preparation for today, it's really clear to see what this passage is really all about. We see this very serious promise declared over and over and over again. We see this announcement that has an urgent tone to it, don't we? It's an announcement that brings either a joyful sensation to some of us or really a warning to some of us. What's the repeated announcement? What do you see over and over again? It's this, it's behold. Basically, uh, look up here, right? Pay attention, watch for it. Watch for what? Behold what? I, Jesus, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. See, in verse six, it says, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Well, what is going to take place soon? Well, the next verse tells you, behold, I am coming soon. You look down in verse 10, it says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Okay. The, this is the exact opposite appeal or, or direction that's given to the prophet Daniel. He's told in the, in the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel is told to seal up the words because it's not going to take place for a while. But here, John is told the exact opposite. He's told to not seal up the words. Okay. Why? Because the time is near. Well, what is near? Well, verse 12 tells you, behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus announces again that he is coming soon, but he doesn't just come to say, hey everyone, I've been gone a while, it's great to see you. That's not what Jesus says he's coming back to say, right? Instead, he's coming to do what? He's coming to bring justice. He's coming to right all wrongs. And he's gonna reward those who are faithful to him according to what they've done. So actually what we believe in this life and what we do seems to matter a lot to Jesus. But also he's going to bring judgment. He's gonna bring justice. He's gonna bring rightful punishment to those who didn't live rightly, but rather, verse 11 says, in a filthy way. Verse 20 then continues. He says, he who testifies to these things, which if you're reading, you go, who's testifying to these things? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is testifying to these things. Well, what does he say in verse 20? He says what? Surely I am coming soon. Guys, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. He's gonna come again. He says he's gonna do it soon. 
There's an urgency to what he declares, what he announces to you this morning. Well, I mean, honestly, let's just be real, okay? Is this something that we should begin to doubt now? I mean, it's been a while, right? I mean, it's been a couple thousand years. I mean, that's not really soon in my book. I don't know what book you have. It's probably not soon in your book or your view of time, right? But we must remember that in 2 Peter, for example, what does 2 Peter tell us? We are told in 2 Peter that a day to God is as a thousand years to man. And a thousand years is like a day. What, what does that mean? Well, that our definition of soon very well may be different than God's definition in terms of time. But the urgency is still there. The promise is actually still there. The promise from the mouth of Jesus to you this morning is still there that he is coming again soon. I mean, this is how and why the very first Christians that held these scriptures in their hands could proclaim this announcement. They could declare this announcement and believe it. Or this is how Christians in the Middle Ages or Christians in the Reformation era could actually declare this. And it's how Christians even today can still declare this and it's still absolutely true. As we, we should not doubt this because God always keeps his promises. He just always does. And if God has always kept his promises, that should give us a confidence in his words to us. We often experience this sort of thought and experience of, of life where if you have somebody who often promises you something and they don't follow through, what happens? You begin to doubt them, right? You begin to lose trust in them. I don't even remember how long ago it was. It was probably a year or two ago. Uh, my, my daughter, my oldest daughter, um, she continued to say things that just weren't true. And uh, I can't honestly remember exactly what it was, whether it was like, you know, her brother was, she kept saying her brother was hitting her and he wasn't, or, you know, she was faking sick, which she's already faking sick for school, which is kind of sad, okay? But um, so I don't remember what it was, but I remember sitting down with her after like the third time for saying something and it just wasn't true. And I sat her down and I go, girl, like, I, I want to trust you. But every time that you tell me something and you, you say something, it's not true. I kind of, I lose trust. I begin to doubt you. And I don't know why, but in this moment, I thought this will be a good parenting moment. Something just came to my idea and I ran with it. And I was like, have I ever told you about the girl who cried wolf? You know, contextualizing the story for her, you know? And I go and I start telling the story and I get to the end and I'm like, you know, that third time, you know, she cried for her parents to come. She said there was a wolf and they didn't come because they didn't believe her, but the wolf was there. And I got to that point. I was like, oh, whoops, I forgot about what the story, I don't even know what the story's about. And she goes, daddy, what happened to the girl? And I was like, uh, I don't remember. The point is, you know, <laughs> just, you got to keep your word. You got to, you know, if you're going to say things, make sure they're true. And she just kept asking me over and over, you know, what happened to the girl? And I was like, we'll just talk about it later, okay, you know? That's not the point, you know? It was a bad, bad move, really, right? It's a bad move. I, I probably want to suggest that, okay? But we all get the point, right? We all experience that as true. But see, I think it's really important to realize that if Jesus says this to you, you have to look at his track record to know if you can really start, you can really believe it. I wouldn't start doubting him if what he has promised in the past has always come true. I've looked into this this week that in the Old Testament, God promised to send a Messiah, to send someone to rescue God's people in the world. And he came through on that promise. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what we're celebrating 
this month, this Advent season. And so we've seen all these prophecies fulfilled. This will be on the screen. Um, there, were, there are nearly 300 references to 61 specific prophecies of the Messiah that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. That's a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament that told about a Messiah that was going to come and he was going to do certain things, okay? And there was a, um, a, a, a guy named Peter Stoner. Yeah, he was the chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College up until 1953. And he wrote a lot of books that really influenced a lot of people. And he did uh, a lot of, of the math, I guess, behind the probability of this actually coming to fruition, that there could be this many prophecies all fulfilled in the way that Jesus fulfilled them. And he, he, he did this. He said, let's just take eight of the most basic prophecies, just eight, eight of those 61 references or specific prophecies, just basic ones like the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem, okay? Or the Messiah would be pierced and die by having his hands and his feet pierced. Just basic, just take eight of the most basic ones, eight prophecies like that, he said, and the probability of all eight of those prophecies being fulfilled accidentally somehow in the life of just one person. He said, you want to know the probability of that is? The probability of that would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros. He said, that's one in 100 quadrillion. That's the probability of all these prophecies coming to fulfillment in Jesus Christ, Okay. This is important as you read something like Revelation to realize all these prophecies were foretold about the Son of God coming, the Messiah coming, and he came, and we celebrate that at Christmas. But see, all of those prophecies are butted up right next against all these other prophecies. And in the books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and again here in Revelation, all these prophecies that say that once again this Messiah will return. He will come back. And they haven't yet been fulfilled. They haven't yet been realized. And so when you're reading something like this and you hear Jesus say, I'm coming in soon, and you're going, my definition of soon is different than yours. I don't know, should I begin to doubt you? I go, well, man, if, if the probability of, of, of all those prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus was that, and it happened, and they're standing right next to all these other ones that I'm waiting to see realized, that should breed a ton of confidence in me towards what Jesus is actually speaking to me this morning. That should give me a lot of confidence in this promise, in this announcement, in this word. You guys, you can take this to the bank of life, honestly. I mean, God has never once, never once failed a single person who has stood on the face of this earth and put their trust in him. He's never failed one person. I mean, there might be people who say that he has, but, but I would suggest to you that they maybe didn't understand what Jesus was promising them. See, it's true. When you read the Bible, when you talk to people who followed Jesus their whole life, he doesn't fail. He's always trustworthy. He's never failed once, and you're not going to be the first person he's going to fail. So Jesus announces to you this morning that he's coming again soon. And, and I beg you to realize that our passage shows us there is no middle ground. We see here there are only two ways to hear this announcement this morning. There are only two groups of people. There's two ways to hear this announcement. 
Okay, and I, I recognize that that isn't very culturally acceptable to say that uh, because, and it's kind of true in some ways, but we're, we're taught that we're all so unique and we don't fit into perfect boxes. And so I'm sitting, saying, I'm sitting here saying, yeah, there's two groups of people in this room. But that's what our passage tells you. There's really two groups of people. There are only two ways of hearing this announcement. There are those that our passage says are blessed by this announcement, and there are those that are warned by this announcement. There's only two groups, two ways of hearing it. And so the blessed ones, which means the happy ones, are the ones that cherish, they're the ones who keep, they're the ones who hold to these words. And the warned ones here are the ones who hear these words and they kind of go, meh. They take them lightly. They're like, I don't know if it really means that, maybe I think it means this, or I'm just not gonna listen to that, right? They take them lightly. They continue in their ways of living that are very contrary to the heart of God. I mean, look down in verse 18 and 19. This is the warning. It says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So guys, there are blessed people and there are warned people. And our passage describes that how we view these words that we've been reading and what we do with them matters. Do we just hear them? Or do we actually listen to them and believe them and allow them to shape the way that we actually view our lives? If we keep them and cling to them, that's only gonna actually cultivate a heart within us that loves to hear this announcement from Jesus. But see, there's no middle ground. There's not a third group that's like, yeah, just kind of in the, in the middle of the street or something. That's not what you see in this passage. There just isn't. There's blessed people. There's warned people. There's Jesus's people, and there's people who aren't his people. There's filthy people and righteous people, verse 11. There are insiders and there are outsiders, verses 14 through 15. This is just the way it is. It's, it's reality. You're either one or you're the other. And the coming of Jesus puts you in one of those spots. His arrival will put you in one of those spots. I have a photo for you. It'll be on the screen here without looking at any of the words. Does anybody know who this is? No one knows who this is? Okay, you can look at the words now. This, my friends, is Tennessee Ernie Ford, okay? This is Tennessee Ernie Ford. Um, I, I love music, okay? And so, if after the service this morning we were talking, we were chatting up about music, and you said, oh man, I've been listening to Tennessee Ernie Ford, or TEF, or TEF, you know, as probably his fans call him or something, okay? And I was like, oh, TEF, never heard of him, all right? Uh, and I'm driving home today, and I'm, I, I look him up on Spotify, and, and I start listening to him. I would, I would be honest with you, within a matter of probably 15 seconds, I would turn it off, and I would say, man, we just, we don't share the same love of music, right? We're different people, okay? But there's something really weird about Tef, okay? Uh, I love his Christmas album, okay? I'm just gonna be completely honest with you. His Christmas album, it's really nostalgic for me because I grew up listening to Tennessee Ernie Ford's Christmas album. And so every Christmas, Tennessee Ernie Ford arrives in our home. It's, these, it's, the, it's the, I don't know, for me now, the 30-something advent of Tennessee Ernie Ford in my house, okay? 
And I, I love it. I enjoy it. And my oldest son now likes it a little bit, you know, and my wife, not so much, okay? She's really nice and polite, and she, like, puts up with him, you know, and, and me uh, singing. But even the other day, she reminded me. She's like, it doesn't even sound like he's singing. It just sounds like he's talking in a really low vibrato or something, you know? And we kind of disagree on it or whatever. But every year, this guy arrives through our speakers in our home, okay? And it's divisive, right? I mean, we don't have conflict over it. But there's really, you listen to Tennessee Ernie Ford, and if you haven't listened to him before, Go listen to him today, and you will know there's people who either love him or hate him, okay? And, and I would fall in the camp that really enjoys this, this Christmas album, right? It fills my soul with comfort and bliss, and for Liz's soul, it makes her want to vomit, I'm guessing, okay? See, when he arrives, there's clearly no middle ground in our speakers. Just to make this point even clearer, if you're not following me, I mean, if you're at the scene of a crime and you are a victim, and a police officer arrives and the offender is still there, your view of that officer, officer's arrival is very different than the offender's, correct? That's a comforting reality. For the offender, though, that's not a, a comforting reality. That's a, a feeling of dread, a feeling of resistance. Right? This is how it is with Jesus. Have you seen this passage? Jesus, guys, he's coming again. And there's only two ways to hear that announcement. There's only two spots that you could be in. So let me ask you, how do you know which spot you're in? How can you know that you're blessed and not warned? That you're keeping the words and not adding or subtracting from them? Well, let me put it to you this way, okay? It is all about keeping the words, but it also isn't. Here's what I mean. There's a far more significant explanation for how someone is the blessed person in this passage. There's a far more significant explanation for how you become an insider and not an outsider. And it does have everything to do with keeping the words, actually. Look in verse 14. It says, what, is it, what does it say? It says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. To the people who are blessed, who experience the tree of life, which we've looked at last week, is this tree that's in, in the new city that we're all moving towards someday. It's a, it's a tree of eternal life, that you get to have this eternal forever communion with God. That's what this tree represents, okay? And it's this tree that brings eternal life and healing, and the people who experience this have entrance to the city, and those are the same people who have done what? They've washed their robes. Well, how do you wash your robes? Well, it has everything to do with keeping the words, okay? This will be on the screen. You can't miss this. Revelation 7, so earlier in the same book, this is what it says. John says, who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So, so how are you blessed and not warned? How are you righteous and not filthy? How are you an insider and not an outsider. Well, it has everything actually to do with what you do with the words of this book. If you keep these words, if you listen to Revelation 7, for example, it has everything to do with what you do with it. If you, if you keep it, if you cling to it, or if you go, eh, I don't care. 
Or, eh, I don't know if it really means that. Or, I don't know, that's just one way of looking at it, I guess. Because what are the words of this book? What are these words telling you to do that you should cling to and keep? They're telling you to go to the Lamb, to go to Jesus, to look to his sacrifice on the cross and see the blood that he spilt for you there. It's to see the judgment that was poured out on him that should have been poured out on you. It's to go to him and to confess him as the only one that you put your faith and your hope in, that he's the only one who can make you clean, that he's the only one that can make you justified, that can make you right before God, that he's the only one that can wash your robe, so to speak. He's the only one that can forgive you of your sin and purify you before a very holy God because you can't do it yourself. You need Jesus. And I'm telling you if, you, if you look to him today as your only sufficient justification before God on your behalf, if you keep the words of this book, if you wash your robe in the blood of Jesus, in his sacrifice, you become the insider. You become the blessed one, not the outsider. You see, this can be such an incredible life-giving announcement from Jesus that you can like cling to this morning that he is actually going to come soon, that he will return, that it's a promise, and Jesus doesn't flake out on his promises. It could be an incredible life-giving announcement if you've come to Jesus with your filth and said, wash me. I, don't, I know only you can wash me. I know there's full and final forgiveness in you. But if you haven't done that, then this announcement that Jesus will come again is an urgent warning, actually. It's a serious and sober announcement. See, if this is you this morning, if you've washed your robe, so to speak, that's amazing. You're, you're blessed, right? You're happy. This is good. So let me, let's, let's end with this. How does this mean you should live today? Well, well it has everything to do with this cry, Okay. There are two things that we see in this passage of how we should live, and they're both found in verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. See, there's two things that should mark our lives if you're a part of Jesus' community, his followers. And it's our, 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 this should mark us until he returns again, until he comes again. And that's this, that we should be people who cry out to Jesus, come. And we should be people who cry out to others to come to Jesus. You see this in verse 17. People are crying out for Jesus to come. And they're crying out to others to come to Jesus. They're saying in, in verse 20, you see Jesus announce this, this truth that he's coming again soon. And, and this shared union in that response is what John has, right? He, he echoes it. He says, come, Lord Jesus. This is what the bride, this is what God's people are saying. They're saying to Jesus, come, Jesus, come. It's the cry of their heart. This is the cry of Jesus-y people, right? We, we should cry out for him to return, we should cry out for him to come quickly and to return. Why? Because we know that when Jesus comes, 
He will be recognized by every single person as the one true king, as the one true ruler. And when Jesus rules and reigns, his leadership doesn't bring oppression. His leadership brings peace. It brings life. To put it to you this way, in other words, we could cry, we cry out for Jesus because we know that his presence is the solution to all of our problems. His presence is the solution to the world's brokenness. That's why we cry out for this. Let me ask you, do you you believe that this morning? That Jesus really is the solution to all of your problems? Let me tell you, you will cry for something. You will cry out for whatever it is that you think is the solution to the gaps that you see in your life. Or whatever is the solution to the pain in your life or whatever you think will fix your brokenness. We all cry out for something. We cry out from the smallest situations to the larger issues in life. You you experience this as a child. What happens when you're a child and you're experiencing a problem? What do you yell for? Who do you yell for? Mom, right? Dad, right? I hear the dad, the annoying, shrilly dad cry all the time, okay? Why do I hear that? Because there's some conflict or something, or they're unable to do something, and I am seen in my kid's life as the solution to the problem. My presence with them provides a, a solution. It fixes what's wrong with the situation, at least in their eyes, okay? I mean, that's, a, that's a very simple example, but it shows in part that we cry out for what we think the solution is. We just do. We, we cry out in very large scales in life. When we look at the world's brokenness, we cry out. We look at the world and we all see, we all actually agree, every single person, we all agree, things aren't the way that they should be in this world. Something is actually wrong with it. And so we all ask the question, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, we all ask the question, how can what is wrong with the world be made right? We all ask that question. We're all asking that redemption question. And so we discovered what it is that we think will make things right when we listen to what it is that we're crying out for. And so this is why in a city like Corvallis, the vast majority of the cries that you and I hear, and we might even echo these cries, is that we need, when we look at the brokenness of the world, we need more education and we need better politics. Why, why do we most often hear those cries? Why are those cries, cries the loudest? Well, it's because people in Corvallis look at the world and they know things aren't the way that they should be. And they're asking the question, how can what is wrong with the world be made right? And so their answer is, well, if everyone was more educated, and if we had better politics, then this world wouldn't be the way that it is. So we cry out for what? We, we cry out for the redemption piece. We cry out for the solution that is more education, better politics. Or you can take this into a very private, personal situation in your life. When you're in a season of anxiety, you cry out for more control. You might yell and try to exert the little power that you have. Or when you're experiencing loneliness, you might cry out for and seek out companionship and compromising ways. Or when you're in a financially tough spot, you're like, I I just need to work. I need to work more. I'm gonna work harder and longer. 
Or when you're in a season of depression, you might cry out for some mode of comfort, some substance to abuse, or some distraction to get lost in. Or, Or really, if we could be really honest this morning, you might get to the point where you're crying out for so long that you've spiraled into a place where you literally are crying out for the Grim Reaper, for for death itself to come. You think that's the only thing that can fix your situation. You think that's your solution. See, guys, education is important. It's great. Good politics are are important. Them functioning well is important, but, but that will never fix the brokenness of the world. And some of these things that you are crying out for in these personal situations, they they may or may not be important or they may or may not be even good things to desire, but I'm telling you, those will never fix your personal brokenness and these will never fix the brokenness of the world. Why? Because what's wrong with the world is not something that's out there. What's wrong with the world is something that's in here. What's wrong with the world is in me. What's wrong with the world is in you. We, we have a much deeper problem, and therefore we have a much different cry. So we, we cry out for the forgiveness of Jesus, and we cry out to him in faith, and then once we do that, we cry out for him to return once and for all because we know that he is the solution, that his presence mends the brokenness. We cry out for what we think is the solution to our places of brokenness. And so we all say that that Christmas is a season of hope, and if it it is, if, if Jesus really is your solution, cry out to Jesus and cry out for him to come. Don't cry out for for death to come or not another warm body to come or not words of applause to come or not a bigger paycheck to come or not another bottle to come or not more control. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out for him to come and to make all things new. But secondly, we not only cry out for him to come, we cry out for others who are being warned by Jesus' announcement. We cry out for them to come to Jesus to come to Jesus, the living water, the true river, the source of life that will always satisfy when you drink of him, his life. I mean, do you see that? It says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Why can we drink of this water of life without price? Well, somebody else paid for you to drink from it. And Jesus paid for that with his own life. He says, don't seal up these words in your heart or, or your heart alone, you guys. Open these words to your own heart so that you would keep them and cling to them and believe them, but open them up to your friends and your family and open them up to the world. So they would hear this announcement that Jesus is coming again, but they would also hear this invitation to come to Jesus and have themselves washed. So I think you can read passages like this that contrast these people, right? These two groups of people. So we have like filthy and clean and evil and righteous and insiders and outsiders. And if you're somebody who's been washed by Jesus, okay, and you're somebody who's now an insider or you've been declared righteous, so you've been made clean, okay, and you know you have access to this future reality of this tree of life, right, this healing life and all this kind of stuff, if you're not really careful, this could be dangerous because you can tend to wall up and push people away who aren't in your camp. They're not in your spot. 
And you can say, I'm clean. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe that you're like that. And you can start pushing people away and you go, come Lord Jesus, just get me out of here, but I don't care about these people. But that's not what we see in our passage. Why? Because all of these people who are Jesus's, they know that they were once the outsider. They know that they were the, the filthy, that they were the, the evil camp, that they were the ones who were indifferent to this word. They knew that this is where they belonged, and the only difference that stands between someone who's a Christian and who is not is grace. That's it. It's the grace of Jesus. And Jesus' people know that, at least we should. And so then, therefore, we will have this deep-seated belief that, that no one is too far gone for Jesus to rescue. And so what do we do? We invite. We invite. No one is ever too far gone for Jesus because I remember what I was like, and I thought I was too far gone. He redeems people out of the most grim or most unlikely situations. Uh, our friend Josh Butler up at Imago Day recently shared how he met um, this woman who's a part of Imago Day now, and she came to Jesus. She responded to this invitation to come to, to the rivers of life, you know? And her and her husband were in this cult, okay? And they were open to any spirit but Jesus, is what they said. And you know, know how they came to Jesus? They came to Jesus through a Ouija board. They were sitting around a Ouija board, and the letters went to Jesus is Lord, Jesus found them even in a place like that. Changed their lives. See, no one is too far gone. Jesus, we can encounter Jesus in the most unlikely places. No one is too filthy. No one is too evil. No one is without hope. The words are open. They're not shut up. The invitation is here. Everyone is invited to come to Jesus. All you have to do is be thirsty. That's all you have to do. And so, guys, we all cry out for something. We cry out for what we think is the solution to our problems. And Jesus' people, the bride, we hear the announcement from Jesus that he is coming in soon. And guys, we cling to that promise. We cherish it and we cry out for him to return because he's the solution to our brokenness. His presence heals our problems, our sin and our brokenness. But then we turn around and as we cry out to Jesus to come, we cry out to others to come, to come to Jesus, to return to Jesus, and we cry out for them as well. Let me just ask you, is this your cry this morning? Was this your cry when you walked in here today? Was this the cry of your soul this week? I pray it would be this week. Would you all stand with me, join me as I pray as we go into a time of response here?